Let me tell you what you can expect um, next couple of weeks. Uh, next week, I appreciate uh, Lee not only doing what he does just every week here, but he's going to help us out because, um, Lord willing, this time next week, um, Andrew Todd will be married. And uh, I've, I've been asked to come and do that wedding. Usually Larry covers for me on Sunday morning, but Larry feels like he needs to be there for his son's wedding too, if, if nothing else to just verify that the boy is truly married. And uh, we're going to Nashville for that, and I think that's going to Nashville, Tennessee, by the way. We, we, uh, we think that um, that's going to be a, a wonderful event, and I'm very proud of the young man. Um, and uh, then in two weeks in here we uh i hope to start a, a a series that that i'll probably tell you more about later but it will have to do with some of the foundational um, things that we believe in and uh, i want to develop that into a series now i hope to do it in a way that that that's interesting for us but also i'm hoping to do it in a way that the recordings are useful to people uh beyond just this assembly so uh, I've had a lot of people request the, uh, the Sunday night lessons, and I'm thankful to our fellows who helped get the technology together uh, for all of that. So this is just a wonderful year of uh, exciting possibilities. I want to share with you tonight some additional thoughts that go with the lesson this morning, and I want to tell you a, a couple of things as we begin. One is... I stumbled across this very interesting book by David Gushy. I assume that's how you pronounce his name. It's G-U-S-H-E-E. -E. I posted this on my Facebook page, uh, and the book is called The Sacredness of Human Life. And uh, it's, it's over 400 pages, but it is an easy read. It is, um, and it, but at the same time, it's also very in-depth. And he has some good material in there that explains how we can develop a biblical and an ancient view of the sacred nature of life and what that means for us even now in the 21st century. Anyway, I'm just going to share that with you as a, uh, as a great resource in that. But one of the things that, that, I was, um, that I was struck with in the text and in his book that didn't really fit into the sermon was the idea of the image of Christ. Now, we spoke this morning about the image of God and that humankind is made in the image of God. Uh, you see that in Genesis, Genesis 1, 27. Uh, God made humankind in his image. I know it will often be translated, God made man in his image. The word man there is, is not the, the meaning with gender. It's the idea of humanity or mankind. Uh, but there he makes humanity in his image, in his image he made them, male and female he made them. That's Genesis uh, 1. And then you, you see repeated the idea that the image of God is in humanity. It's repeated in Genesis 9 with the prohibition on, on killing. We don't shed blood. Why? Because other human beings are, are not just human beings, but they're made in the image of God. So there's an elevation. You also see this, by the way, in Psalm 8, where uh, the psalmist says, uh, what, is man, what is mankind, what is humankind, that you're mindful of him? You made him just a little lower than the angels or just a little lower than God. This idea that we have within us, that, that, that nature of the divine 
And that, that separates us out from the rest of creation. So there's something to this. In the New Testament, you see the idea of the image of God, but you have added to it now the image of Christ. And I find that to be extremely interesting and meaningful. So uh, just a few thoughts on that. Let's take a look, first of all, at 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, um, and we've studied 1 Corinthians in here, and uh, I, I... I really, I really like First Corinthians because Paul is, uh, you know, dealing with a church that has its issues. They have their problems. They have, you know, they. Uh, can you imagine what it would be like to be at the church at Corinth? I mean, you go in there and hire all the rich folk having their communion over here, and uh, if you're not so rich, they're like, hey, 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 you go over there, you know. Or sorry, we d- we ate up all the bread. Drank up all the wine, you know, you're out of luck. And then uh, next thing you know, I mean, tongue speakers start firing off, you know, right in the middle of a prophecy. It just must have been just uh, all kinds of uh, uh, laughs and giggles to be at Corinth there, you know. I mean, so here's Paul, and he's addressing their, their issues, and they're all divided, and he keeps responding to things that they think are important. And every time he responds to one of them, he takes them back to Jesus Christ. He takes them back to Jesus Christ every time to find an answer. And then in chapter 15, he wraps up his message to them and he says, Now, now he goes, I want to remind you of what is ultimately important, what is most important. And he talks about the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's forming in them this idea that if they would grasp that that's at the center of things, then some of those other issues, they they would have answers for it. And they wouldn't just have to get those answers from him. Uh, In chapter 15, Paul is cooking along, trying to show them the significance of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And he's especially interested in the resurrection, and he's concerned that they've sort of forgotten the significance of the resurrection, or maybe they doubt it. By the time we get to um, verse 42 in chapter 15, um, he has some things to say about the resurrection and what this means for us. So I want to pick up at verse 42. He says, so it is uh, with the resurrection of the dead. When I so it is means he talks about different kinds of glory or different kinds of bodies uh, in both the, the, the sky, the celestial objects, and in nature as they understand it. Okay, so he says, he's talking about categories is what he's talking about. And he says with the resurrection of the dead, it's also of its own category. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised to power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, if there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, 
so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, then we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, there's a few things to observe here. This sowing and raising is an uh, image taken from gardening. You put one kind of material or body or object in the ground, what you get looks very different. So he's saying that when we're buried, uh, when, when we die, uh, what, what dies is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What dies is dishonor. What is raised is glory. And we're going to come back to that word glory. Um, weakness goes, tur- turns to power. And then to wrap it all up, he says we go from the natural to the spiritual. First observation, notice that he says a spiritual body. One of the things we mentioned this morning is that the, the idea that the spiritual is somehow ghostly and immaterial is one of the problems that causes us to devalue human life and human existence. That we, we're, we're sort of like uh, practical Gnostics that we believe that this body is, is unimportant and doesn't matter. This body's not perfect. Some of us were talking about our aches and pains coming in here tonight, you know. I mean, we, we all, we're all experiencing that. We're definitely experiencing the dishonor and the weakness, you know, as we go along. The perishable nature of our body. But never is it said that the body doesn't matter, that the body isn't important. In fact, the very testimony of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the word become flesh honors the creation. Now, you and I, uh, you can read from this, inhabit a bodily existence that is not exactly what God intended. He intended more. Paul does not go from the idea of disembodied spirits who then get wrapped up in flesh for a while, and then after a while, they, they loose those bonds and they become disembodied spirits again, and they're all happy. If that's the case, then why doesn't God leave us as these pre-existent bodiless souls? Because that's not the goal. That's not the objective. Uh, Such thought, by the way, is nowhere found in Christianity or in the Bible. Now, I know you'll see things like God formed us in the womb and he knew us. Yes, yes. That's God, though. That's God knowing us. The idea and the nature that we have some sort of divine perfect existence before getting wrapped up in flesh comes from paganism and Greek philosophy. The fact is that when God knits us together in the womb, God, that's a wonderful, amazing, fascinating thing. And we are both spirit and body all wrapped together. Paul doesn't go from this bodily existence to a bodied existence. Rather, he says we go from a natural or a earthly existence into a spiritual one which seems to suggest that the spiritual is more than the material. It's not absent of the material, but it is beyond the material. And he uses the example of Christ, who in the resurrection had a different kind of body, but nonetheless, he has a body. There's something important to having this this embodied existence but in Christ, that becomes perfect. And, and, and now he says in verse uh, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's that corruptible body, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the image of Christ. 
that spiritual existence and that spiritual body. I tell you, if there's nothing else you can take from this, it's just, you know, carry with you this week and ponder that idea of spiritual body. Because the philosophies of this world and the philosophies of the age will, will compel us to separate spirit and body. And that's not Christian, that's pagan. Spiritual body means that all of existence, the way God intended it to be, comes together. The, the man of the dust who has the image of God in him, Adam, has life when God breathes it into him with his spirit. But yet, that's not even the goal. The goal now is Christ, who is the Word, become flesh, and then raised from the dead, the firstborn from the dead, Scripture says. The resurrection, in some ways, represents uh, kind of a, a new humanity. Um, you know, there's a lot of strange philosophies out there, and one of those that you'll come across, and if you don't, then count yourself lucky, is this idea of, transhumanism, the idea that people can become more than human and we can improve the human body with technology and medications and everything else. Well, such a thing is, 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 is hubris. It's the idea that we somehow know better and know how to make it better. That's not the goal for you and I. The goal for you and I is to live fully into God's design for us, fully into God's purpose and his plan for us and to experience that. And by the way, the way he defines it is the image of Christ. Christ is our first example of that. He's the prototype. He's the one that we see who represents this. Now, follow me over to 2 Corinthians 3 and you'll see this image of God idea one more time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Um, Paul has a lot to say about glory. And maybe this is the, the opportunity to talk about glory. Uh, glory is an idea that, you know, when you and I think about glory, we think of maybe magnificence or beauty. We'll, t we'll you know, um, the, the glory of, um, or we'll even talk about fame, you know, that some people are glorified. Uh, we even use it as a negative. Uh, if we, you know, if we say that someone's false or a phony, we'll say that they're a glorified fill-in-the-blank, you know, whatever it is, which means they're not real. They're just being dressed up, adorned, decorated. That's how the word glory usually comes to us. The original word for glory in, in the Hebrew and then even in Greek has much more meaning than that and it means weight or heaviness. There's a significance and an impact that glory has to do with something being really powerful and awesome. And in fact, what's interesting about that word is you see that word used a lot throughout Scripture. It will refer to the glory of the heavens, but it's actually used in Job also to talk about how um, alarming and impressive and stunning uh, a horse snorting is. 
You know, and if you've ever been around horses and once that, you know, when they decide to make some noises and blow their nose or what, you know, everybody pays attention. I don't know. Horses cannot do that quietly. You know, they, they, they snort and you pay attention, especially if they're upset. Well, that idea that that is profound and powerful and grabs your attention and it, it, it captures your attention. That's the idea behind glory. Glory is not our own fame, our own quest for uh, attention from others, but the glory here and being glorified means that God is captivated by us. He, it's almost like saying he favors us. Now, I'm not doing justice to that, and we'll just have to leave it at that for now, but I'm, I tell you, there's a lot to understand about glory, that um, here he's talking about the glory of becoming more and more like Christ. In verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Here he's talking about the story of Moses who, when he spent time in the presence of God, God's glory made his face shine. And so Moses would wear a veil because that, that glory was, was rather upsetting maybe or it was uh, stunning in some way. And so there's a, there's, there, he's hiding it somewhat. Um, here he says, uh, he's using that then as, a, as an image. Their minds were hardened to this day when they read the Old Covenant And that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And so we all, with unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of the Lord Oh, no, and we all with unveiled faces who are beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, and all of this comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. Here he mentions the same image, the image of the Lord, the image of his Spirit, the image of Christ. And, and here he adds the idea that we're being changed made more and more like him. The image is the likeness, just like Moses was when he was in the presence of God. Here, that the word of God is changing us and bringing us more and more into that, he says, one degree of glory to the next. Um, I, I don't know that there's particular ranks of glory, but the idea is that it's a gradual process where we're becoming more and more like him. And that is the Christian life on this side of Christ's return. That there's something active going on there as we come to know him more and more. We would call that sanctification. We are being made holy. We are being made more like him so that we bear his likeness. Now, it's not that we all look like Jesus in our face, but we look like Jesus in our life. Our life starts to reflect his nature. That's the image of Christ. One more stop in this I want to show you. Romans 8.29. We're going to go back for Romans 
Um, here, Paul again is uh, on the, the notion of glory. That the sufferings or the trials that we're going through in this present time, it's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. And here that glory <clears throat> is the glory that God's going to bestow on us. Like, um, like someone who um, loves their children. And you, are, you have that sense of pride about them. You have that sense of, of happiness when you're around them, when you're with them. Maybe it's the birth of a child uh, in, in whatever way. Here, God has that same sense. It's not to say that he worships us, but he has that joy in us and, and seeing what happens in us. And it's described as a glory. It's a weight. Now, we'll get... I'm going to go one more place to describe what that is but here uh, that glory comes about because of what God is doing in us Uh, I want to pick up in verse uh, 20 um, 28 he says we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's our tendency to get hung up on that word uh, predestined. And I'll just say this about that. Uh, Paul never read John Calvin, so he doesn't know anything about our concerns with predestination. Uh, he means something else. But the, <clears throat> the phrase I want us to pay attention to is there in verse 29. Conform to the image of his son. Did you catch that? That God in this choosing and this knowing and this it's 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 saying that God has this intent now I don't think there's some cosmic lottery where God is picking some people and not picking others but God has determined this this plan this desire to do something with humanity we are not the product of random chance that when God creates when he creates humanity and makes them in his image he has this he has this um intent That's his predestination. That's his foreknowledge at work. Sin corrupts all of that. And now God is working to overcome that. But his his desire, his end game, his goal is the same. He's going to call us, justify us, and glorify us. And the process to get there looks like us conforming to the image of his own son. What God is doing in Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, is showing us what real humanity was always meant to be. That what we see in Jesus Christ before his crucifixion and resurrection and after 
the resurrection, that what we see in that is we see true humanity as God always intended for it to be. In every way, you can think about Christ. That there's no flaw there. there there's no disobedience. Um, there's nothing perishable. There's nothing uh, corruptible about it. And in that, we are becoming more and more like Christ because God has this, this end game, this goal in mind, where we're going to be justified. That's just the start. That means we're made right. How many times do we end right there? I got baptized. I'm okay with God. Me and God are good. Okay, that's great. Nothing held against me. Feel good about that. Now I'm just going to go on about my life. Well, don't stop there. There's more to come. You get justified. Now the next step is glorified. We take on more and more of his nature. Our lives become more and more significant. But not significant for our own sake and not significant because of us, but significant and meaningful, which has to do with weight and heaviness. Meaningful because of the image of Jesus at work within us. And it becomes real in us. Those are some thoughts there. Uh, One of my favorite writers of the 20th century is C.S. Lewis. And uh, C.S. Lewis actually has a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And, and he, he's on to something here. He was on to this idea that glory has to do with, with heaviness and significance and meaning. And in his own poetic way, he, he closes out this, um, this sermon, this, um, this, this writing, and he says, All day long... We are, in some degree, helping each other to one of the possible destinations. And he's talking about heaven or hell there, that, that, that we are always helping each other out. And, you know, if you stop and think about that, we're not just helping people to heaven, but sometimes maybe through the things that we do that are not godly, we help people on the way to destruction. That's, that, that's a good place to end your sermon and get people thinking about that. He said, it's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities and it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations... These are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Now, pause right there. You see what he's done? He's done what Paul is talking about, the imperishable or the perishable and the imperishable. We live in a world that tells us that we are insignificant against the history of great civilizations. Wrong. You and I were meant for eternity. We will outlive those crumbling empires. Yeah. Now think about that. So he's done that here where he's turned that around and he says, against our life, such things as nations, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life to ours is as the life of a gnat. It's with immortals that we joke 
we work with, we marry, we snub, we exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, and he's talking about communion. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ is present, the glorifier and the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden. Now, that's not scripture, but I think C.S. Lewis understands scripture. And he's read Paul and he's read those verses. And that's the kind of thing that makes you just stop and think a little bit. And in the air that we breathe are a lot of contaminating ideas that um, our lives are short and small and they don't count for much and, and uh, they're kind of meaningless and they're filled with sorrow and pain and on and on and on and on. God has more for you. And he's going to redeem all these things. So let's conform to the image of his son. As the Hebrew writer puts it, fix your eyes upon Jesus. He's the author, the finisher of your faith. He endured hardship. Look to him so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. We're going to sing one more song here. And if anyone needs to partake of communion tonight, that's going to be served in room 100. So let's stand, let's sing, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.